The following message is from the 2019 IBCD pre-conference with Scott Mell. Essentials. I think when we think about personal ministry and engaging with one another and, and uh, providing gospel care in the midst of life's messes, we, we tend to think of personal ministry primarily as a talking ministry, right? You, you sit down and you talk with someone, right? If you're going to listen, if you're going to take the time to spend the time to listen to, to someone, like we talked about in the last session, if you're going to take time to, get to really get to know them, then the next thing you're going to do is you're going to talk, right? You're going to speak. You're going to speak truth to them. But the New Testament calls us as Christians to a ministry that, that's actually not quite so one-dimensional. In fact, there, there's more to it than just a, a talking ministry. God calls us to do more than just talk. He calls us to, to serve one another as well. As, as we go back to the, the definition we've been using for gospel care. Gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act of loving another person through patiently knowing and sacrificially serving. I mean, just think about Jesus at the climactic moment of his ministry with his disciples. Right, it was the night just before as he was preparing to go to the cross, as he was preparing, really spending some of the last time he was going, dedicated time he was gonna spend with his disciples. And in that moment, he chose not to spend a portion of that time teaching, not to spend it sharing, but he decided to spend it serving them. Right? Jesus spent that time at the climax of his ministry washing his disciples' feet, demonstrating the, 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 the love and the care and really the position of a servant which I think, you know, when, when we look back on it and we think about it and we think about the story that Jesus washes disciples' feet, it sounds nice. But in, in that moment, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's what I would have chosen to do. <laughs> right? It seems like if he was gonna, about to leave them, right, the, the, there was probably some other things they needed to know. You know, we probably would have tried to organize things and, and, and get things together and make sure that they knew exactly what they were supposed to do and exactly what they were supposed to know. But he took time to serve them. I mean, just, just think about it. Imagine, with, imagine this scene with me, right? When, when Jesus tells them, gets up, takes off his outer garments, wraps a towel around his waist, kneels down, and, and begins washing just one of the disciples' feet, right? He gets water and, and puts it on their feet. He he scrubs it, right, getting the dirt off, right, probably scraping some, some, some dung from the road off. I'm sure there was, I'm sure it tickled at least one of them, right? I mean, some of you were like, I hear somebody like touched my feet. But, right, like this, this is the reality of this moment. It probably took some time and he was down on the floor and he washed it and he had, it probably wasn't like, oh, I just sprinkled some water on it and, you know, okay, next. Right, like he washed his, their feet. And then he dried their feet off with the towel that was around his own waist. And then he went to the second one. And he did the same thing. And put water on and scrubbed and got clean and dried with the towel that was around his waist. And, and then he went to the third. 
and then the fourth, and then the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh, and the eighth, and the ninth, and the tenth, and the eleventh, and the twelfth, right? He, he washed all of his disciples' feet, and somewhere in there had time to have an argument with Peter, Right? This wasn't just a quick act. This was a, 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 a drawn-out moment in their time together where he wanted them to know, yes, I am your teacher, and I'm also a servant who loves you. And in that moment, John 13 summarizes for us, it says, when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Right, it, it, do you see, I mean, this is that Philippians 2 model just in a different context, right? If I have loved you this way, this is how you should love one another. And then he followed this up with, with the most radical act of service by dying on the cross. Again, not just words, but an action, a sacrificial action, a sacrificial act of service that overwhelmed with the reality of its love. Right? And, and John writes, as we've heard before in 1 John 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's an incredible model and it's more than words. He didn't just talk about how amazing it would be. He didn't just tell them the truth. He laid, actually laid his, down, his life down for them. And so if we're going to love one another in the midst of the mess, the way God has called us to following his example from God humbling himself all the way to the cross, then it's going to involve more than just our words. It's going to involve our actions. It's going to involve our lives. The New Testament is filled with service-oriented one-anothers. The one-another commands, the commands that say, you know, love one another, care for one another, be hospitable to one another throughout the, Old, or throughout the New Testament. There's a lot of them that are speech-oriented, and we're going to get to that in the next session, but there's also a lot of them that aren't about our words. They're about what we do for one another. And so I've tried to... Kind of, we, we, we can't cover all of them, but I tried to summarize them actually in, into just kind of five kind of overarching ways that we are called to serve one another in the body of Christ. And these are what, what we're going to kind of look at in this, in this application of how in gospel care we are called to serve one another. And the first way is by praying for one another. The first way we're called to serve one another is by praying for one another. Any genuine ministry to people, any genuine love for people must manifest itself in heartfelt prayer for one another. 
Jesus told us in John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear much fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Does that attitude characterize your personal ministry? Right, when, 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 when someone comes to you in the midst of a mess, is, is your first thought, man, apart from Christ, I can't do anything. I have to start by prayer. I have to start by going to him and, 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 and beseeching him and, and interceding for this person. I think one of the best ways I've found to, to assess this in my own life and ministry is to ask myself, do I spend more time talking to a person in the midst of their mess or talking to God about that person? I think where we use our words exposes where we put our trust. And when we use more words to a person than we use to God about the person, it shows that we think that is what is actually, that is what actually can help and change people. I mean, now our theology would say, no, 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 it's all about God. No, no, I can't do anything without God. And, and, but the question is, does our service, do our words actually reflect that? See, the single greatest way we can serve those we're ministering to is by taking the time to intercede for them, by intentionally interceding for them. Because if they're in the midst of, the, of a mess, even more than our help, they need God's help. They need his working. Right? I mean, j- just, just reflect a bit on the incredible promise Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says to us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Right? God wants you to come to him. If you are in need, he wants you to turn to him. And if the people you're ministering to and caring for are in need, he says, come to me. Ask me. Because I love them even more than you love them. If we love people, we're going to pray for them. But our, our service doesn't just stop there. A second natural overflow of our love for people is that we will also pursue them. We'll also chase after them. Right? When life's going well, we're, we're going to chase after and pursue them because we want to share in their happiness. When people are hurting and it's not going well, we want to chase after them because we want them to, we, we want to share in their grief. And when sin gets in between us, we want to chase after them so that we might be reconciled with them. Right? This is an example of, of 
this is exactly what Jesus and Paul did repeatedly in their entire ministries, right? I mean, how many people did Jesus go and tell, follow me? Or he didn't just wait around being like, oh, I wonder who's going to end up following me, right? Like he pursued people over and over again. In Matthew 18, he tells us specifically that, that we're called to pursue others, especially when our relationships have been impacted by sin. That when sin, when the mess bubbles up in our lives and our relationships, that's not the time that we turn away. That's the time we pursue with even more intentionality. Right? Matthew 18, verses 15 to 16. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take two or one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, I think some people, and I think in our, in our churches, this tends to be described, this passage tends to be described as church discipline, which is, is fine, and I think it, it can be described that way, but I, I'm not sure it's the best description of what Jesus is teaching here. I, I think this passage isn't fundamentally about church discipline. This passage is fundamentally about church pursuit, Discipline might be like a description of the ultimate consequence. It's just the natural consequence, really, of unrepentance. But really, the, the whole lesson we're meant to draw from Matthew 18 is that when someone's in sin, we're called to pursue them, not to turn the other way. And if they don't listen to us, to, to pursue them with more people. And if they won't listen to those more people, to come bring even more people. Right, to pursue them and to chase after them and to beg them and to call them, be reconciled to God. Oftentimes, it's when people go quiet that they need us to pursue them the most. You, you ever do this just in, in life? You know, people kind of go quiet. And you're like, oh, I haven't heard from that person in a while. And so you think, oh, everything must be fine. How seldom is that the case? The reality is when people go quiet is when they need us to reach out the most. Love doesn't just assume everything's fine. Love doesn't just minister to those who happen along our way. Love pursues those God has placed in our lives out of love and out of care. I mean, there's, there's probably people that you know you ought to be pursuing in life right now. There may be people that come to mind. I mean, I'd encourage you, even just, just write their names down in your notes. Right? You, you've been writing all sorts of notes about how to care for people, about how to think about caring for people. You're, 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 like, make sure that this isn't just random people that you're thinking about. Like, think about the specific people in your life that you know God's placed there. Who, who are they? And what does it look like to actually pursue them, to love them enough to pursue them, even in the midst of the mess? Love always pursues. And third, love also shares. Earlier I mentioned 1 John 3.16, right? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we had to lay down our lives for the brothers, and right after that in verse 17 says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The Christian 
worldview teaches that people are embodied souls, right? We're all embodied souls. So you, you can't separate, in this life, we can't separate our souls from our body, right? And so to care for someone is to care for the whole person is to care for them body and soul. And so to do more than just care for their soul and speak truth to them, but to also care for their physical needs. To be someone who's, who's generous, First uh, Timothy just describes this, being generous and ready to share. Who wants to look for ways that we can share our time and our resources and our money with those who are in need. I think too often we, we adopt the, the formalized pattern of ministry that the world utilizes, right? A, a formalized pattern where, right, in, in the world you're, you, you want to be, you, if you're going to minister to, you're going to care for someone, you need to have strict boundaries, right? You need to have formal settings, you, you need to have um, appointments that, that, that last just so long, and above all, you can't get too involved, But Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, right? I mean, we've been talking about it all along. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, he calls us to get involved. He, he, he calls us to, to through, into places that, that are going to impact us, that are going to require things of us. He calls us into places not where we look for those we're serving to provide for our needs, but where we, in the midst of serving and caring for others, seek to provide for theirs. He, he calls us ultimately into the mess, even when it's really messy. And, and of course, like there's going to be times where you, as you consider what's most needed in a particular moment, sometimes what is most needed is withholding those things because the natural consequences of choices need to be born. That's true as well. But we make that choice because we believe it's before the Lord is what is best for the person we're ministering to, not because we're used to just withholding and protecting ourselves. God calls us to, to a ministry where, where we're praying for others and we're pursuing others and we're sharing our lives laying down our lives for one another in the body of Christ. Again, this isn't the, the call of just the radical Christians. This isn't the call of just the, the, the pastors or the missionaries who've chosen to give their lives away. This is the call of every Christian in the kingdom of God who's following our upside-down Savior. So we... We're called to serve others by praying, by pursuing, by sharing. And fourthly, we, we're called to serve one another by bearing with one another. I mean, the, the church is a strange, diverse family, isn't it? Right, I mean, when, when the only thing that draws us together is our common experience of being adopted by God and forgiven by him and reconciled to him and therefore making us a family, that means that none of the things that normally pull, draw people together in this world are necessarily a part of the equation. 
And we can end up in family and sharing family and living as family with people very different than ourselves. And, and that, that results in a, a church where there's people who are, they're just annoying. I mean, right? I mean, if we're going to be honest about each other. Right? And I mean, I mean let's, let's be fair. Some people are thinking that about you, so that's okay. That's okay. Some people are thinking that about me. They're like, I got to be in a church with that Scott guy. And he, he just talks all the time, right? Like, it's kind of annoying. Right? People have all sorts of different preferences. People have all sorts of different cultural expectations and, and work ethics and, and social capacities and social abilities. People have all sorts of different political opinions. You're like, what? Everything. There are all sorts of differences. So, so what do we do? Well, what do we do when we're ministering to others that... If we're honest, we have a difficult time with. Right? The, the problem might not be sin, but it is these, these differences. In Ephesians chapter 4, before he gets to the, the, the part where he's talking about us speaking the truth in love to one another, he, he kind of introduces this whole concept of how we are called to respond to God's overwhelming and amazing grace in life, but, but by living a life that reflects that reality, and and, and in chapter 4, verse 1, he starts this way. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, how are we called to live with one another? He says, with humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. I, I actually, I, I love the way he puts it here. He's, he, he only knows he's bearing with one another. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, to me, that's like a whole other level. Like eager to do it. I, I think that most Christians would find themselves willing to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But there's a fundamental difference between willingness and eagerness. Because I don't, I don't just want you to be willing. I want you to be eager. Uh, one, of the, one of the differences I've experienced in my marriage with my wife is that we, we, have, we have a different vocabulary sometimes. We use words differently. And so we've had to learn that over the years. And one of the, the, the words that we've found to be one of the, the, the primary difficulties, miscommunications in our marriage, is the word sure. My... My, my wife actually, and you, this is actually op- the opposite of what you're, what, you're, what you're expecting right now. My wife loves to use the word sure, right? Like, hey, do you want Thai food for dinner? Sure. Right, do you want to go out on Saturday night? Sure. Like, do you, know, do, do you want to see that movie? Sure. And when she says sure, in my head, I'm like, well, if you don't want to, just say it. <laughs> right? I mean, that's like ambivalent, like I'm willing to. Sure is like her saying to me, like, I'm willing to go, I'm willing to eat Thai tonight. I'm willing to go to the movies. I'm like, I don't want you to be willing. Like, I want to take you out. Like, I, I, I want, like, sure connotes, like, no eagerness to me. And, and, and to her, she's like, she's like, oh, no, no, sure is filled with eagerness. <laughs> okay. God is calling us to do more than when he says, I want you to bear with one another and pursue the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. He's asking for more than us being like, oh, sure. All right. He's looking for an eagerness. 
Right? He's, he's calling us to an eagerness that says, what I, des- I know that what you desire more than anything is for us to be united in Christ across all of these different things that would tend to divide us. And since you long for that, I long for that. I long for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so when, I'm, when, I, when there's annoyances among those I'm ministering to or caring for, things that I don't, I don't particularly like or that's not the way I do it, he's called me to bear with them because I'm eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. God is calling us to love and provide gospel care, not just to people that are like us, not just to people who think like us or who we click with. He's calling us to provide gospel care to those who we even have to bear with and, and bearing with, every, and, which if you're in a relationship long enough, ends up being everybody. Right? Everybody's gonna annoy you one way or another. And, and God calls us to, to stay in there bearing with them through that out of love. This isn't just, this is, this isn't just the the. the practical kind of, you know, service level annoyances either. He's even talking about just genuine disagreements. But Romans 14, he says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, right? So some, some people, even that you're, you're caring for, might have different consciences than you do, more sensitive consciences. You may disagree over drinking alcohol or how to spend your Sunday or, or what shows or movies you watch, but love bears with one another, and welcomes one another, not, not to quarrel over opinions, but to patiently and gently help one another become more like Christ and wrestle through even these areas where there might be disagreements to, to strengthen our consciences, but patiently in love. But, of course, everything isn't an, an opinion, right? Sometimes it's sin that does divide us. Sometimes we don't, it's not just that there's annoyances that divide us. Sometimes we get sinned against. I mean, if you're going to minister to people in the midst of their mess, if you're going to minister to fallen people in the midst of their mess, eventually that sin is going to fall against you. Right? They're going to sin against you. But just like everything else, even when others sin against us, God provides a way forward. Colossians 3 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He's repeating it again. Bearing with one another, like we just talked about. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive. Right, and he demonstrates this in, in the parable of the f- unforgiving servant. Right, he says, if you're, if, you, if you're called to forgive, I want you to remember that the unimaginable amount that you have been forgiven by God. We, we couldn't pay off our debt with an inter- eternity. But God paid our debt for us. And he says, and just as I have forgiven you, so you also must forgive When we're sinned against by those we're ministering to, when we're taken advantage of or lied to or purposely manipulated or stood up or gossiped about, I think our our natural response, right, is 
What? How could you do this to me? Right? I've been pouring my time into you. I've been, I've been sharing with you. I've been praying for you. I've been bearing with you. I've been asking questions and, and listening to you. And now, and now you're going to treat me this way? Like, how, how could you even do that? Because they're a sinner. Because every person you're ministering to and caring for is a fallen person. They're going to sin against you. And you're going to sin against them. Like it's the reality of life in our fallen world. And so God provides us a way forward. And it's, the way forward is not just to find the nice, mature people that won't sin against you to minister to. As if they exist. It's if you're going to minister to people, he says that they're going to sin against you, but there's a way forward through forgiveness. So he calls us, right? He says, if your brother sins against you, as we looked at earlier in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault and give them the chance to repent. Luke 17, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And then now the relationship between forgiveness and repentance is, is complicated and we don't have time to go in depth of it here. There's actually a number of great resources that, that can help on this and just to dig in deeper to this. One's uh, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. The, um, Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze is another great resource that helps us. But the helpful takeaway from our discussion here is this. If someone you're ministering to is unrepentant of their sin, it's not loving simply to drop it and move on. God is calling us to pursue them. He's calling us to bring others with us to pursue them. He's calling us to do whatever we can in the power of the, in the context of the broad church family to draw them to repentance. And if they remain unrepentant, that's what the entire church family is for because love longs for people to be reconciled to God. But if they repent, at any point, if they do repent, if they ask for forgiveness, if they repent and ask for forgiveness, then they can be reconciled to God. And if the person you're, you're ministering to can be reconciled to God, they ought to be able to be reconciled to you too because of the magnitude of his, the grace that he has shown all of us. Which brings us kind of back to our our main point and even just the reality, like if we love people, when we genuinely love love forgives. Love forgives. When people sin against us, which they will, and they respond in repentance, love forgives. It, it makes a commitment. Says, I, because of God's forgiveness of me and my love for you, I will no longer hold this against you. I'm no longer going to bring it up to anyone else. And I'm no longer going to bring it up to myself. I'm never, no longer going to dwell on it in my mind over and over. And we're gonna have to fight to keep that commitment. That's what, that's what forgiveness is. It's making that commitment. And we're gonna have to fight to keep that commitment in our relationship and in our reconciliation with them. But it's only this kind of forgiveness that's going to be able to sustain a relationship through the messiness of life. Otherwise, we're gonna bounce from relationship to relationship to relationship because people are gonna sin against us. But if God calls us to manifest his kind of love, it involves that kind of grace. It involves forgiveness, it involves bearing with one another, 
It involves sharing with one another. It involves pursuing one another. And it involves bringing one another before the throne of God and praying for one another. All as acts of ways, not to show us that, that, that loving one another isn't just um, a ministry of words. It's not just about talking, but it's about laying down our lives for one another as well. And so with that, as we look at how we are called to serve one another and care for one another, the next kind of component that we're gonna look at, the next piece of the puzzle here is speaking. And as, as we looked at in the last session, gospel care is more than just a talking ministry, right? But it's also not less, right? As we continue on in, in looking at our, our definition of gospel care, gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated act of loving another person through patiently knowing, sacrificially serving, and truthfully speaking. We do need to open our mouths, Paul Tripp describes truth without love as a boat without oars, which I think is a, a, a fair analogy. But truth without love being a boat without oars means that love without truth is like having oars with no boat. Right? We, we, if, if we're actually going to get somewhere in ministering to one another, we need to love them and, and, and our lives need to pour out love for them, but we can't stop short of speaking God's truth to them. Th think about those, those red-letter Bibles, right? I, I don't know if any of you have like a red-letter Bible, right? In a red-letter Bible, they, they make all the, the words of Jesus throughout the Gospels, they, they put them in red, right? Just kind of highlight and you can like see the, the words of Jesus. What, what if instead of in red, what if they were like all removed? What if there weren't any words of Jesus? Right now, there would still be some content in the Gospels, right? Jesus does listen, to, he spends time listening to people, and he does spend time doing things for people. But the very core of his ministry, it, it, it would be ripping out the very core and very heart of his ministry to others. And in the same way, if we were to love and listen and get to know people and serve them, but stop short of speaking truth to them, it's like ripping out the core of what God is calling us to in truthing in love and speaking the truth in love. So at the very core of Jesus' message and at the very core of our message is a message of truth, a message of hope, a message of peace, and a message of unimaginable love. This is why the writer of Hebrews in chapter three says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? Basically, how do we keep, how do we make sure that, that, that those around us who are caught in the mess of, of an unbelieving heart or being led to fall away, how, how do we minister to them? How do we care for them? And he says, by speaking to them, by, by exhorting them, but by exhorting them every single day. Man, I love this like little turn of phrase. It's right, it's, it, this is like, I mean, this is like a dad joke in the Bible, right? Like, if, if it's called today, then you should be doing this. Right? It's like if, if, if there's a, if there's a, if the day ends in Y, 
you should be doing gospel care, is basically what he's saying. Right? As long as it's called today, we should be ministering, caring for, speaking truth, exhorting one another every single day. But speaking truth is more than just speaking scripture and throwing scripture at people and using Bible verses. Right? Satan does that. Right? Satan throws Bible verses, paraphrases Bible verses, just kind of throws them out for his own purposes. He did it with Jesus when he tempted him. He did it with Adam and Eve. We're called not just to speak some verses, but to speak God's truth for God's purposes. So, so what does that look like? How do we speak God's word, God's word for God's purposes um, into one another's lives in the midst of the mess, in the midst of a, the mess of hurt and the mess of struggling that people so often find themselves in? Well, first, we do so by giving hope. Right? When people are in the midst of life's messes, when they're struggling, when they're hurting, inevitably, they need hope. Because one, um, one of the common temptations in every struggle is hopelessness. Right? No matter what the struggle is, people are... are tempted to feel like it's just, it's always going to be this way, right? There's no way out. There's no hope in the midst of this. I mean, just think about the different people in your life who might be able to use hope, right? People who've had problems for a long time need hope. People who are struggling or sick need hope. People who are, have failed need hope. People who are sinning need hope. People who are depressed or anxious need hope. People who are feeling weak need hope. People who are making big decisions need hope. People who are concerned about decisions need hope. People who are young generally need hope. People who are old need hope. People who are ignorant need hope. People who are arrogant need hope. You get the point? Right? Everyone needs, what everyone needs in every mess of life is a reason for hope. And we, that is what we have in Christ. Because hopelessness is, is the greatest temptation we face in the midst of the mess. Right? We hear hopelessness in all sorts of different ways. You hear hopelessness when people say, I, I, I can't. I can't go on. It's too much. We hear hopelessness when, when people say, you know, my boss makes me blank. Or my, my, my kids force me to blank. Hopelessness is at the root of the cry. If I only had blank, everything would be all right. See, but providing hope is so much more than just throwing out some platitudes, right? Giving hope isn't just saying, don't worry, it'll be all right, right? It'll be okay, everything's going to work out. Because number one, they don't even know what we mean by that. Number two, how they take it, that statement might not even be true. In fact, platitudes, platitudes don't help hopelessness. Platitudes are like throwing water on a grease fire. All it does is make things worse. Right? It doesn't bring hope, but it just makes the hopelessness deeper. The only way to provide true hope isn't in platitudes, but is in the assured promises 
that we have given by God in his word and reminding people of the reality of those. Wayne Mack provides a really helpful definition of what true biblical hope is. He, he, he writes this. He says, true hope is a biblically based expectation of good, an expectation based on the promises of God. So it's a biblically based, so it's from God's word, expectation of good, confidence that it actually is gonna be okay. And not just in a platitude, but in a proof because it's been revealed by God through his promises. In the midst of the mess, hope is, hope is essentially the reminder that God is real, that transformation is possible, and that the best is yet to come. Hope is the assurance from God's word that God is real, that transformation is possible, and that the best is yet to come. And this expectation of good can come from all sorts of different places. And we could, we, we could look at countless places in Scripture. But just, just in a, as an example, right, if we look at Romans 8, I've, I've talked a couple of times now about how we can misapply Romans 8.28 or Romans 8.28 and 29, but let, let's look at the appropriate application of it. Right? Romans 8.28 and 29 is an incredibly powerful promise. One that can give us hope, that there's hope for how God is going to redeem our situations, he's, how he's going to redeem the mess in this life. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God promises that no matter what the mess we find ourselves in, he can and he will redeem it. No matter the mess, God promises that he will redeem it. He will redeem it by using it for our ultimate good. He'll redeem it by using it to help make us more and more and more like Christ. And, this is, and again, this is the kind of promise that, that can be thrown around and misused at times as we consider when's, what's most needed at a particular moment. But there will come times where as we consider what's most needed in the particular moment, what is most needed is this person needs to be reminded of the deep true reality that there is hope and that God redeems even the darkest messes. And beyond this, we, we not only see through the promises of God that there are expectations for his good in how he works in this world, but there's also expectations for good in his promises beyond this world and beyond this life. It makes me think of Paul's reminder in, to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, he writes this. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And you, you might be wondering, what, what does this passage have to do with personal ministry? Right? I mean, if, if you were gonna if you were gonna walk through scripture and you were gonna categorize different passages, 
you'd take this one and you'd say, okay, that belongs in eschatology. That, that belongs in the study of end times. That's one of those passages that like seminary nerds love to argue about, right? Like, when's he coming back? What's it gonna be like? Like, how, you know, how, how, how is this gonna happen? And you know, what are all the details? And how is it all gonna like work out, right? That's what this passage is for. Like this passage is for the, the, the curious, but it's not like for us, in the, not in the midst of the mess. But what's fascinating about this passage, so that was 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17. Let me read to you verse 18. Verse 18 reads, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Yes. This is a discipleship passage. This is a gospel care passage. This is a hope-filled passage not written for seminary nerds who want to figure all the little questions out. This passage is for you and me on the ground in everyday life of, of dealing with the mess. Because he says, in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the seeming hopelessness, in the midst of, of, of it seeming like none of this will ever be redeemed, he says, I want you to encourage one another with the words that Jesus promises that one day you are going to be with him. That he is going to return, there's going to be a cry of command, and the trumpet of God is going to sound, and he is going to bring you into his presence. He says, and we will always be with the Lord. For all of eternity, no matter what you're experiencing now, no matter how big the mess, no matter how deep the hole, no matter how hard, no matter how, how impossible it seems, Jesus Christ will return and take you to be with him and you will for eternity. This life is going to be a blip. It's going to be a dot. It's going to be a moment compared to the eternity we get to be with our Savior. This is so forever, always. Encourage one another with these words. Don't wait around for your pastor to come to this passage in his preaching schedule. Use this in life with one another. This is a, a counseling, a, a people, person care, a discipleship, a gospel care passage. He says, give this to one another. Speak it to one another. Remind one another. How many of you woke up today with that on your mind? Oh, you know what? Jesus is coming back. I can't wait. My ch chances are probably not most of you, which means that you even needed the reminder today. You did. You needed to be re reminded today. I needed to be reminded today. And so does every person in your life. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but we might be reminded of the reality of the hope and redemption of God. So we speak truth to one another daily, regularly, constantly in one another in the midst of life so that we might have hope. But hope isn't the only type of speech we need. Secondly, we also ought to speak words of affirmation. I think similarly, affirmation usually isn't what comes to mind when people think about speaking the truth in love. Right? If you were saying, you know what, you need to speak the truth to your friend, you're like, okay, I'll speak the truth to them, I'll correct them, I'll tell them what's wrong, I'll tell them how they're blowing it, because that's biblical speaking the truth. 
And it is. We're, we're going to get to that in a second. But that, that's not all of biblical truth. Often, biblical truth involves affirmation. It involves encouragement. Now, I, affirmation, and I'll, I'll confess, I mean, part of why I'm able to teach this is because I've had to learn all of it, because none of it like, came, came naturally to me. Affirmation doesn't come naturally to me. My, my fellow co-pastors and staff at my church used to joke that my highest form of praise was when I would say, you know, that's not a horrible idea. <laughs> I've come to this realization, this is years ago now, I came to this realization, and actually, if I'm being completely honest with you, it slipped out of my mouth this week. This past week, I was sitting with somebody, we were looking at, I'm like, you know, that's not a horrible idea. And they just like laughed at me. Maybe this, because there, there's more, God's calling us to do more than just simply saying, yeah, you know, that's, sure, that's not bad. In fact, Biblical affirmation is actually one of the most powerfully sanctifying forms of speech there is. At times, affirmation is all that's needed to produce incredible spiritual growth. People may already know what's wrong. They may already know what they're, what, what they're doing that they shouldn't do. They may already be fighting to, to try to bring about change. And what they need is to be encouraged in the way that they're already going. Maybe it's just that, that their ch- change has been slower than they expected or slower than they hoped. If, if change has been slower than, than they hoped, they don't need to be corrected. They need to be affirmed. And keep going, right? Keep pursuing. You're headed in the right direction. That's exactly where you need to go. We, we see this modeled in, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Paul was incredibly affirming to the Thessalonians. He writes in, in chapter 4, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more, right? Like you're, you're already doing it. Just do so more and more. And, and I think actually, if you're a part of a healthy church that's preaching the Bible, if you're a part of a healthy church that's preaching the Bible, chances are what people are gonna need more than anything is affirmation. Hey, I know you're pursuing it. I know you're trying. I know you know the truth and what you need. Keep on pursuing just as you are doing. Keep on doing so more and more. However, while affirmation is fundamentally important, it's also not the only type of speech we need to give. Sometimes correction will be needed. And sometimes you're gonna, you're gonna come along and say, you know, as I consider what's most needed, affirmation isn't what's most needed right now. Sometimes it might be correction. Now, some of you might love giving correction. and If, if that's you, you should slow down and Listen to all the last sessions again, and then we'll move forward. Um, but mo- I, honestly, I think most of us don't, right? Most of us don't love giving correction. Like, that's not, that's like not what we're looking for. That's not when we wake up early in the morning and be like, I can't wait for my, re- my relationships today because I get to point out what they're missing. Right? But I think this, because we don't like to, this is why our relationships can stay on the surface. Right, we've soaked up all the cliches, right? Like, I'm not supposed to judge anyone. Like, I, I, everyone has their own truth. Like, if I don't have anything nice to say, I just shouldn't say anything at all. But genuine love, when we genuinely love people, genuine love doesn't let sin go uncorrected. Genuine sin does not let sin go uncorrected. 
If your friend was walking out into the street and a car was headed the way, you'd correct them. You'd bring them back. If your child was learning to read and they were pronouncing the word tehe, tehe, you'd correct them. You'd say that's the, right? Love corrects and to point people in the right direction. If your, if your boss was about to, to turn in a report that you knew was filled with errors, you'd, you'd try to stop it and help them out, Right? In the same way, when our brothers and sisters in Christ are believing something different than what God's word says, or living in a way that's not consistent with what God calls us to do, love gently, humbly, for the sake of redemption and reconciliation, corrects. And, and of course, like, correction can be a scary thing, right? It's, it kind of feels like stepping out onto a frozen lake, Right? Like, just hoping that the ice is strong enough to hold. I mean, I hope you don't walk on, on lakes that you have to hope that the ice is strong enough to hold. But you get the idea. It's, it's, we kinda, it's like we're stepping out onto the relationship, hoping that the relationship is strong enough to withstand correction, to withstand talking about real things and pointing one another to Christ in the midst of life. But if you've spent time genuinely loving them, knowing them, serving them, caring for them, giving them hope, that's what builds relationships and strengthens relationships so that correction can be a normal part of life, not just a a crisis moment, but a normal part of us striving to point one another to Christ. I think correction that strengthens relationships can be a foreign concept. And I think it's because we think of correction as like, as judgmentalism. I think we we think of it as judgmentalism because the way we've seen it, the way we've experienced it, or maybe even the way we've done it, is correction is when I stand with God and look at you and say, you're not living up to this. This isn't right. God and I agree. Right, we, we feel the same way about you. And we think it needs to change. But that, that's not what biblical correction is meant to be. Biblical correction stands with your brother and sister as a fellow sinner, as a fellow failure in need of grace, and says, look, God's grace is so good. Look, his grace is so amazing. We, we both need to continue to change and, and let's strive to do that together. Here's, here's a way I can help you do that. Let's help one another become more like Christ because we stand as for, forgiven sinners together before a gloriously gracious God. And when that's the loving posture our correction takes, the love that motivates it, the true genuine love that motivates it will be evident. And a final way that we, we speak to one another is in teaching, right? Sometimes people are on the right path and they need to be affirmed and sometimes people are on the wrong path and they need to be corrected and sometimes people don't even know where the path is and they need to be taught or they've forgotten where the path is and they need to be reminded. And so teaching or teaching and reminding one another is a part of us speaking truth as well. Every Christian If every Christian is called to gospel ministry, every Christian has a teaching ministry. 
And the most common context for our, all of our teaching ministries is going to be the one another relationships in life. I mean, I, I preach a bunch and I speak a bunch and teach a bunch, but still the most common context for my teaching ministry is in one-on-one relationships, just like it is with yours. We, as we minister to and care for others, it's gonna involve teaching and reminding. Sometimes that teaching takes the form of practical wisdom, right? Scripture's filled with practical wisdom, right? Like Paul's instruction to Timothy to no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and its frequent ailments, right? The, the universal principle here isn't that wine is the only thing for, for ailments, like we talked about before. The, the, the point here right, is that Paul's love for Timothy manifest in not only reminding him of, of truth, but also helping him out practically, giving him some, some tips along the way, and, and being interested and concerned about his physical condition, just like he was concerned about his soul. Right, the person you're ministering to may need help making a schedule or planning for the week. They might need help keeping a budget or managing their finances. They might need help developing a practical plan for, for Bible reading or, or, or prayer. They might, might need to recognize that, that they need to see a medical doctor. They, they might just need the encouragement that, you know, if they're having communication trouble, like just start with trying to have a 15-minute conversation with your spouse every night. I, I can't tell you how many couples I've said that to. Because oftentimes people, like, they, like they're, they, they, they see their sin, they want to love one another, they want to care for one another, they're repentant of their sin, they desire to show one another love, but they, they, don't, they just don't know practically where to start. But our teaching, and so, and so sometimes even something like, hey, why don't you start with this practical idea can be really helpful. It can be a manifestation of love. But our teaching shouldn't just be practical and pragmatic. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of deeper theology about who God is, about who they are, about what he has promised, about what he's done, about what he's called them to do, which I know can be overwhelming too. But if you, know any, if you know a truth about God from his word, if you know any truth, then you can teach that truth. If you know any truth, then you can remind others of that truth. And if you know the gospel, then you can teach others the gospel and you can remind others of the gospel. And the reality is every single one of us needs reminders of the gospel of the reality of the gospel and the implications of the gospel in our lives every single day, which at the core is why God has placed us in one another's lives, to be the means of that reminder. In our last two sessions, we'll look at how we consistently apply the gospel into one another's lives together. We'll look at that deeper theology that we're called to teach one another and remind one another as we kind of expand this 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 concept of our call to teach one another and to speak the truth in love. So let me, let me pray for us and, and wrap us up. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your grace. We thank you again for your love and care for us. Will you um, continue to even just provide us opportunities today to remind one another of truth, to give one another hope, to affirm, correct, encourage, teach, and remind one another. And will you give us the courage and the strength to do so? To, to listen to you and to follow your lead. Uh, we praise you, Lord, for the ways that you love us and the ways that others have spoken and, and taught us. And we thank you, Lord.
In Christ's name, amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.